Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hey, welcome to the Got a Minute podcast with uh, Pastor Rich Lusk and uh, Larson Hicks is my name. It's good to have you here with us and uh, welcome. I don't know what this is. It's like episode six or seven or we're we're uh, we're we're getting close to that to the double digits which is exciting to me um yeah it's great it's been great uh doing this with you larson for sure i think so i think it's been fun i've gotten feedback um i think our uh our last episode with uh andrew isker was a lot of fun um great guy good book um and uh I've gotten uh, I've gotten some good feedback from several folks, yeah, so yeah. I think it's a good uh, I think it's something to keep doing. Uh, and uh, if if you're listening and you're enjoying it or not enjoying it, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, I'll just I'll share my email address larsonhicks at gmail dot com. Pretty straightforward. Um, but yeah, feel free to send us any questions or thoughts or feedback or um, you know recommendations or or uh, ideas for future topics. We're we're always eager to, to hear and hear from folks that are listening and engage with those conversations. So, um, yeah, well, excited about today. We, it's, it's uh, November the 9th. Uh, so it's the day after the, uh, the big, uh, the big midterm elections. Um, did you vote? Did you vote? Rich? I did vote. Yes, I sure did vote. And, uh, Larson, I'm, I'm really, uh, happy to say that our state remained solidly red uh, and I say proud to say that not because I think the Republicans have got everything right. In fact, I think the Republicans in our state, as well uh, as a lot of other yeah. places, really leave a lot to be desired for sure. I but I still find them very preferable to the alternative. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I had a hard time. I had a hard time voting for our governor. I sat there looking at that yeah. bubble for a while. Um, but, you know, I, I say that I told my wife on the car ride home. I said, I said the same thing. Like, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a huge fan of Mima. Uh, but she said, well, look, I mean, she, she, she bumbled on, uh, definitely missed the, missed the ball on COVID, but she's, she's come down pretty, pretty strongly on the right side of things when it comes to pro-life and yeah. And, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, and well, and of course, you know, at, while I don't think she's a great candidate or necessarily a great governor uh, as a leader, I mean, she's certainly not a Ron DeSantis, uh, who I think is setting the standard right now. For sure. uh, she, yeah, she's she's much better than the alternative, and she does deserve credit for for the things she has gotten right for sure. But I, this is what I think is interesting. I think that there was a lot of um, conservatives and a lot of Christians who expected this massive red wave yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And expected a lot of conservative causes around the country to prevail, and that did not happen. Right. And I think the question is why? Is that because Republicans didn't run very good candidates? Well, from what I can tell, there are places where Republicans ran some pretty good candidates who didn't win. Yeah. Certainly, there are other places where Republicans ran people who were terrible candidates. No, no question about that. But I think the fact that you didn't have the uh, the conservative tidal wave that some people were expecting. I think I think that tells you a couple things. One is it tells you that whatever kind of cultural crisis we are in, we cannot vote our way out of it. There is no political solution to the problems we face. So, you know, the, there's the old saying that politics is downstream from culture. I think that's 
true. Uh, and I think you're, you're seeing that. I think our culture is very corrupt in all kinds of ways. Our culture has a kind of death wish when it comes to things like abortion and um, the LGBTQ issues and marriage and uh, all kinds of other things. I mean, I think, I think in a way what you have is a lot of people who really do love statist tyranny of some sort. Um, and so I, so there, there's obviously no way we can vote our way out of the situation we're in, which means our hope is reformation and revival, which come from God and flow out through his church. Yeah. And so that brings us back to something that, that I've been saying for a really long time. We got to recover the centrality of the church, the centrality yeah. of weekly worship. So much flows out of that. The fact that our culture is in the shape it's in, I think is an indictment of the yeah. church in America and ways in which the salt has lost its saltiness. Yeah. Amen to that. It's, it's, um, you know, and, and we just had a conversation last week about uh, Christian Nash, uh, you know, Isker's book on Christian nationalism. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think, I think it's, uh, it's just a hot, it's just a buzzword right now. And, and I think these guys are capitalizing on that fact and, and trying to, you know, take an opportunity to, to, um, to, to score some some culture war points and kind of get their word in while people are listening, you know, to uh, on this topic right now. Um, but I think there's a lot of Christians who hear it and get kind of excited about the idea of, oh, you've got people who are really arguing for Christians to uh, to 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 get more strategic in their uh, political engagement and. And I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to that necessarily. I can actually tell you our, our church has a, has encouraged our people uh, in a very particular direction on, on political engagement. We've, we've said, um, we don't think there's anything really meaningful we can do politically until we actually become informed. And so we've encouraged a group of people uh, to form uh, and, and just to commit to go to city council meetings and record yeah. what happens and share that with the church. Um, because, you know, I, I, my son's reading um, Amusing Ourselves to Death right now. And, you know, the comment he keeps making to me is he said, I, th I thought this was going to be a book about how we need to spend less time, you know, playing video games and less time uh, watching sitcoms. And he said, and actually, it seems like a, the main thrust of the book that he's read so far is that, is that news media is 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 just pure entertainment and and that's really the junk we got to stop spending all our time on and i and i really do think news is so is so addictive you know because yeah, it is. It, it's it's entertainment but it's entertainment that has hooks in it you know where where i can watch a sitcom and just say look i'm just spacing out and just trying to like unwind and laugh and i know i'm not doing anything important right now but when you sit there and veg out on news media all day you can convince yourself that you're doing you're doing your civic duty you know that you're being moral and uh patriotic by sitting here and just vegging out on on news media and and when really you're not you're really not <laughs> you know you're really not doing a whole lot of good uh for anybody you're just you're just um you're just getting sucked up into this, basically in, into the story grip of a good sitcom. You know, it's just, it's just one that never ends. Uh, and it's right. pretty well. 
Well, I think you're exactly right. I, th I think the news media, the 24-7 news cycle, you know, at this point, I think it's designed really to make us anxious and angry and depressed and fearful yeah. uh, to keep us on the edge of our seat. I mean, they know what sells. They know what 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 grabs eyeballs and gets the ratings and that kind of thing. And that's that's what gets pushed. And I, I, I do think that most Christians, I mean, I wouldn't say this of everybody. It's important to be informed about what's going on in the world around us, uh, even so we know how to pray, if nothing else. But uh, I think a lot of Christians are just way, way too into, uh, you know, the, you know, having to follow every little story. And, that can, and, and that's, it's, it can be very counterproductive. It does not really help us at a certain point to, yeah. to, to, to hear all of these horror stories about what people are doing in D.C. or somewhere else that we can do nothing about. So, you know, we talked to Isker last time. We talked about Christian nationalism. I wonder if what we need before we, we get to a Christian nationalism is a kind of Christian localism. Which it sounds like maybe what you guys are doing by putting an emphasis on on local politics, local engagement, local involvement. I, I think that could be a really important uh, stepping stone to things like, you know, a, a real Christian nationalism. Totally. Well, it's. I mean, I, I think the. Uh, I think the reality is we've been. You know, I, there's the temptation to either you know just be a consumer of news media and and call that your civic duty. Or, you know, you get the other ditch of people who are just zealots for their political ideology, whether it's libertarianism or classical liberalism or or theonomy or whatever you Christian, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, and just to complain all the time and argue all the time about how our society needs to be structured in a particular way. And, I, you know, I'm not saying that there's not a place for that kind of study and that kind of thinking, but for your average person, how much of that is really val valuable. And and uh, and and uh, I think what we're trying to encourage our church to do is, hey, take that time and bandwidth and energy that you're devoting to news media or whatever, and maybe redirect that to, to actually paying attention to what's happening in our city. Cause there's tons of stuff happening every day, every city council meeting that we're not even aware of that actually is making an impact on our community. And we could change, you know, if we were started just paying attention and letting people know, do you know that they're doing this? You know? Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Well, um, Rich, why don't we transition here into uh, the topic of, of today? Yeah. Um, I think uh, I th so. You wrote a you wrote an article back in 2015, and I I read it. Um, I think I read it right after you wrote it. Um, we weren't here in Alabama. No, we were here in Alabama. So I remember this coming out, and it, it was you you, pu you published it uh, shortly after the Obergefell. Um, That's decision. right. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Obergefell ruling came down in the summer of 2015, and I, I wrote this article right about that time. Uh, I think I'd, I'd actually started working on it before that, and so it, it kind of morphed a little bit into a response to Obergefell. But one of the things I do in this article is I, I, I really set the stage uh, for how Christians should um, understand the concept of nature and yeah. how we should make use of natural revelation and the relationship of natural revelation to special revelation, which, of course, for us is the Bible. Uh, because I, I, all, all of this is very crucial, I think, because we as Christians need to know how to construct arguments 
we need to know how to articulate arguments in the public square for the things we right. believe about human sexuality, among other things. Right. Uh, so that, that's really a big part of what I wanted to do. So I spend the first, I don't know, 15 or 20 pages dealing with nature, uh, natural revelation. Um, some might say natural law. I would, I would rather talk about creational law or creational design for reasons maybe we'll get into in just a bit. But um, yeah, so I, I think this is an important topic for us. I mean, it may not sound like a very exciting topic. It may not sound like one that uh, you know is going to be really interesting. But actually, I think when you get into it, I think that uh, you know I, I found again and again as I talk about these things, people who were who were not particularly interested at the outset come to realize, oh, there's a real cash value to understanding these things. And and so if you're a parent and you want to be able to talk about sexual ethics with your kids as they're getting older, uh, if you're a pastor and you're thinking about how do I how do I preach on these topics and how do I train my people to do apologetics, because so much of apologetics now these days is really sexual apologetics. We're dealing with sexual issues uh, more than anything. It's, it's, you know, it, the, the issue we face, if you do apologetics today, is not so much, did Jesus rise from the dead? Obviously, that's always relevant. We need to be able to make a case for that. But it's much more likely that we will be accused of being homo, you know, homophobic or transphobic. And we need to be able to make an argument as to why that's, you know, why that's slanderous. We believe that homosexual practice is sinful, but here, let us show you why we believe that to be the case, why it's contrary to the way God made us, it's contrary to our design, and that's why it's contrary to God's law. God's law is not arbitrary. God's law is rooted in his own character, and it's reflected in the way God made the world. So there's something to that. That's good. So um, so the, the article you wrote was called <clears throat> America's War on God and Sexual Orthodoxy, and this can be found on your website. Um, it can, yeah. Uh, uh, trinity-prez.org, right? .net. .net, I apologize. Yeah. Um, but it's really, it's really uh, at, at least uh, you spend a big part of it just arguing for, um, you just explaining uh, the role of nature and the role of, uh, of natural law, or, or as you put it, creational uh, law. Um. I, I was, and I don't know if this has any bearing on the conversation, but I, I read, um, I read this last year. Um, I don't know if you've seen this book, Jean Marc um, Berthoud. I don't know how you pronounce it. I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it, but it was on. It's like Christian Authority, um, or Chris. Uh, anyway, I can't remember the title. I'm, I'm struggling. But Swedish guy or Swiss guy, um, Swiss theologian. I think he wrote it in the '70s. It was just recently oh. translated into English. But one of the points he made was um, was that you know you've got this letter of the law that's written on your heart, right? Um, and then our laws, our our political laws, are are, are designed to reinforce natural law. It's supposed to serve as a as sort of a an aid to uh, our conscience kind of reaffirming what's written on our hearts already um and uh and he was he was talking about how when when uh when we start redefining what murder is or and isn't uh right um and and uh, or, or calling you know things that are evil good theft of of various forms right or uh or divorce or whatever that we start to, we start to kind of um, uh, 
singe the conscience or so to speak, you know, of, of the, the natural, um, sort of revelation that we, that we have about what's, what's right and wrong and good and evil. Um, that, that stuff starts to, starts to be blunted or dulled, um, when you've got un, unjust laws. Um, is that, is that, um, do you do you engage with that kind of concept here in this in this paper? Well, I've not read the the author you're referring to, but I do yeah. engage some with what you could call the natural law tradition. And actually, part mm-hmm. of what I what I do here is I explain why natural law arguments are not very effective in today's context. Doesn't mean we shouldn't make them, but um, let, let me maybe let me give the lay of the land. You know, a, a lot of these discussions about nature and and natural law start with Aristotle. Or maybe they start with Thomas Aquinas or, or that, you know, they, they start somewhere outside of the Bible. Uh, what I want to do is start the discussion within the scriptures themselves. And I think if you look at the New Testament, you find the language of nature used in at least four different ways. And in and, and the paper I point out, there may actually be a few other uses. And you might think, oh, well, how can a word be used in several different ways? Well, the reality is there's just no getting around it. Um, there are certain words that... Uh, they they can end up being used in multiple ways, and even in some ways that seem like opposites. Uh, and and I think that happens here to some degree. But when you look at, at at how the word nature is used in context, you see that it just has to be this way. There's no getting around it. Sometimes Paul will use the word nature, even in two, uh, you know, in two verses, two two passages that are very close to each other, but use the word in a different way. So the four main uses of nature that I think we find in scripture are what you might call essential nature, creational nature, fallen nature, and covenantal nature. So I'll talk about each one of those really briefly. Uh, Essential nature is basically, and this, this may be the closest to Aristotle. It's not identical to Aristotle, but I think it's similar. It basically is a way of summarizing the properties that make something what it is. So, for example, in 2 Peter 1, uh, Peter talks about the divine nature. We become participants in the divine nature. I think that's a way of describing the divine life. And you could say all the attributes that make God, God. Or in, in, in James, you know, he speaks of... Um, how different animals have different natures. Uh, I think that's, let me look that up real quick because that, that's an important one for this. Uh, James chapter three, verse uh, seven, um, I think is where it is. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, so, so basically this is, a, this is the use of nature where we say, you know, a, any given thing has a nature that is, it has a set of properties that make it what it is. Okay, so that's one kind of nature. The second use of the term nature, which is the one that I'm probably most interested in here today, is what you might call creational design. Uh, So when Paul says in Romans chapter one that homosexuality is unnatural, that it's anti-natural, I think what he's saying is it goes against the divine design. It goes against the way we were designed to live. It goes against the way that we were designed to use our reproductive organs, our reproductive powers. Uh, I actually would put 1 Corinthians 11 in this passage too, where Paul says, not, does not even nature teach you? And mm-hmm. then he goes into lessons about hair length for men and women, women having longer hair, men having shorter hair. That's something that I think Paul roots in nature. So here the word nature has normative ethical force because it's rooted in the divine design, in creational design. Yep. Uh, a third use of the term, and this is where it actually seems like it means the opposite of what I just said, 
uh, is fallen nature. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit. Well, here natural man is man as he has, uh, basically it's man at what, what man has become uh, given the fall. So by nature, in man's original creation, he would have lived for God's glory. But now because of the fall, by nature, man lives for his own glory. So what we are by nature has changed since the fall. So Paul can say now that natural man cannot accept the, the, the things of the spirit. Uh, natural man is fallen. And then there's another use of the term that I think you find in Romans 2. This one would be a little bit more controversial exegetically. But I actually think in Romans chapter 2, um, the way some translations have it, uh, this I'm going to read here, Romans 2. Uh, let's just, let's see, let's do... Um, Verse 13 and 14, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law unto themselves. That, that's the ESV. The ESV seems to say that Gentiles can by nature do the things of the law, uh, even though they do not have the law. Um, I actually said I actually think the right way to read that, and I won't go into all the details of this here. I think N.T. Wright makes a really good case for this, and I found it compelling. I think what he's actually saying is that Gentiles who do not have the law by nature still sometimes do the things of the law. So when he says they do not have the law by nature, I think he's saying um, they don't have the law by culture, by ethnicity. The the law the law belongs to. The Israelites. The Israelites have the law by nature. Uh, Gentiles do not. Uh, so I think that's another use of, of, of the term that's nature. That's what you call covenantal nature. Covenantal nature. Yeah. But for our purposes here today, the most interesting, um, the, the, the one we want to focus on, the one I think is really in a lot of ways the most interesting, is that use of, of nature or uh, nature language uh, in Romans chapter 1. And again, I think it's also there in First Corinthians chapter eleven. But Romans chapter one is probably the most, um, the most important use of the term, where Paul says that uh, homosexual practice is unnatural. Now, what does Paul mean by that? I think he means that homosexual practice goes against the way God designed us to live. And I think this is this is something that because Paul uses the word nature, it's something that. Even before there was a, a specially revealed law against homosexuality, I think people could have and should have known this. Uh, and, but, I, but the question is how? So, um, you know, this gets you into how do you actually make an argument from natural law or, or from nature? Let, let me say something else about, about natural law here because I think this also is, is really significant. Uh, today, there has been a, a, a renewed interest in natural law, and some of this is coming from Roman Catholicism. Some of this is coming from uh, within Reformed Evangelicalism. There is a renewed interest in natural law. I think it's really important for us to understand that God never intended for natural revelation to stand on its own. That is, everybody, I think, agrees that God has revealed himself in the things he has made. Romans 1 makes that really plain. I think Psalm 19 makes that plain. I think there's a lot of passages in Scripture that show us God reveals himself through the things he has made. And he reveals his wisdom, his power, his righteousness, maybe even to some degree you could say his mercy. I mean, uh, there is a, well, I mean, a, a revelation of God through the created order. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just thinking pre-fall, you know, God gave Adam and Eve specific instructions 
yes. and laws, right? That predate the fall. So, so clearly, um, they didn't know what they didn't perfectly know what to and not to do without God giving giving a law. Don't eat from this tree. Yeah, that's right. So, so even before the fall, you so before the fall, obviously you have natural revelation. As soon as Adam is created, he can't help but know God as his creator and know himself as one who is made in God's image. Right. That that's that's something he can't not know because it just is 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 bound up with who he is. For him to exist is to exist as a creature of God who has been given this existence mm. by his creator. So he 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 knows intuitively from the very beginning he is to thank and glorify God. And we could say there are even other ethical um, things he might derive from what God has revealed about himself in nature. But this, this is really important. And you were just making this point, Larson. Even before the fall, God did not intend for natural revelation to operate on its own independently of special revelation. So yes, there is natural revelation before the fall, but there's also special revelation. You've got this in, in, in Genesis chapter one, after the man and the woman are made. God blessed them. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the creation, rule and subdue the earth. But also in Genesis 2, between the time that the man is made and the woman is made, we also find God speaking to Adam, giving him special revelation, telling him about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is all, you know, that's off limits, that, that's, that's prohibited. So special revelation, even before the fall, would provide the lens through which man was to look at the natural world all around him. Mm -hmm. So special revelation cannot function without natural revelation. And natural revelation was never designed to function without special revelation. And further, if you think about this historically, you know, all the different nations uh, ultimately descended not just from Adam, but we could say from Noah, because basically the human race gets a new start with Noah. The whole human race is wiped out except for one family, and you start all over again. Well, Noah and all of his family members had special revelation. And then when they began to move out from there, and of course we know they didn't move out the way they were supposed to, they gathered together at Babel, they tried to build a tower, and then they get scattered. But every people group would have had some kind of memory of special revelation at that point. Now, they might have suppressed that special revelation, they might have distorted it, but it was there. It was part of their cultural history. You know, the, the memory of every people group, if you go back far enough, it does include special revelation, even for those that never got a completed Bible. Uh, you know, till maybe Christian missionaries showed up, you know, a few thousand years later. So, so again, God never designed for natural revelation or special revelation to operate independently of one another. Rather, natural revelation and special revelation were designed to form a single system of revelation from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And that I think is really, really crucial. So let, let's, 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 so yeah, go ahead, Larson. Well, I was just going to say, so uh, there, there's a, there's a, part of this that I think maybe maybe flies in the face of uh, the approach that some take to apologetics you know this 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 sense that we can um, just by science or just by logical arguments alone we can sort of arrive at Christianity and and uh, and biblical truth um, or biblical standards for morality and um, and I think what you're saying, it's it's almost like special revelation is kind of a subset of natural revelation. Maybe that's one way to think of it is that 
is that God's built a hierarchy into creation. You've got husband, you've got wife, you've got children. And in the same way that a, a son, a, an infant is dependent on their parents and trust their parents for to provide for them and to also give them instruction about what they can and can't do and what's safe and what isn't safe. That's just baked in to human nature. It's the special revelation, you know, a parent is giving special revelation, you know, right, uh, to their kid. In the same way our God operates the same way, our relationship to God is supposed to operate the same way, where we are dependent upon him like a child um, and not just on uh, on him to provide you know, sustenance, but also to provide instruction and direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that fair? Maybe a fair way to think about it? Yeah, I think so. I think analogies like that have to be unpacked and I think they have their limitations, but yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, well, th- so think about it this way. Um, so natural and special revelation are designed to work together. You, mm-hmm. I think you have a ditch on both sides. You have some who want to be very narrow biblicists and they say we should only appeal to the Bible uh, that, that because that is God's word uh, to us. And, and they will point out that, you know, natural law arguments don't really work anyway. Yeah. Uh, they, they've been made, they've been tried. And usually when people make natural law arguments, they're trying to avoid the embarrassment or the offense that comes from the Bible. So there, there's a kind of, you know, Christian shaming that's going on. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so just appeal to the Bible. You know, and, and that's, that's, that's the key. There are other people, of course, on the other side who say, no, just appeal to nature. We can't use the Bible in the public square. People don't believe the Bible, but they can't escape nature. So let's appeal to that. Well, the reality is natural law arguments, just as much as arguments from the Bible can be twisted and, and distorted. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have, I've heard people say, well, obviously there's no such thing as natural law because there's no consensus on what it is. Well, You'd have the same problem with the Bible. <laughs> I mean, if, if the Bible is the self-attesting word of God, should we find a consensus there and what it means? And yet, you know, we don't. Um, so I would say that the the uh, the revelation that God has given us in both forms, natural revelation and special revelation, while it is objectively clear and objectively absolutely authoritative, it can be twisted, it can be suppressed, sure. it can be distorted. And of course, that's exactly what fallen men do. So just like you will have uh, people who will tell us that you know, the natural law doesn't say anything about homosexuality, you will have people who will take the passages in the Bible about homosexuality that do speak to homosexuality, and they will twist right. those passages. So now, the way they read the Bible, it does not condemn homosexuality. I, I would say both of those approaches are wrong. I mean, actually, there's a very clear argument from nature against homosexuality. There are very clear right. biblical arguments against homosexuality. Right. So the fact that that both these forms of revelation can be twisted doesn't really tell us yeah. you know, very much about those forms of revelation. It, they really tell us more about the sinfulness and the depravity of the human heart. Well, and, and I, I've heard the comment um, you know, over and over in these kinds of arguments well, at least in arguments about things like like homosexuality, that nature always wins. You know that that nature, yeah. and so you know the the counter argument that there's no consensus on nature, I think is just wrong. J- just because right. you know we we've got thousands and thousands of years of of humanity, you know, living on this planet, and so an argument like uh, an argument from nature about about you know, the reality of male and female and of, of their natural, um, orientation to one another is just so 
patently obvious. Um, you can yeah. find the 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 extreme example of the amphibian who can change its gender or something, you know, uh, here and there, right? But but the vast majority of nature speaks very clearly to this reality. Um, yeah, you're right. So so to, to give you one example of that, um, sociologists basically have never found a sustainable society that is a matriarchy. It seems that some form of patriarchy, that is male leadership, male headship, is just built into the very nature of reality itself and is essentially inescapable. You know, so there, there is a kind of, cons- now, what that means and all, you know, there, there's still obviously a lot of debate or exactly how that should be worked out. But I'm just saying, like, if you're, you yeah. can find certain things that do have a really widespread consensus, which would seem to suggest right. that those things are not social constructs, but rooted in the created order and therefore inescapable. But let, let me go one step further here. Um, if, if nature and scripture work together, what does that look like? Well, I would say that scripture always provides the lens through which we should interpret the created order. Mm-hmm. Okay. So certainly there are times where the where what we learn from nature can make us rethink how we've interpreted the Bible, but the Bible always gets the last word. Okay. So if there's some kind of feedback loop between special and general revelation, which I think there is, the Bible always gets the final say, you know, in what nature means. But I, so I would say that uh, natural law can never can never serve as a substitute for Scripture. Right. But I do think it can serve as a supplement to Scripture because Scripture does not address every single ethical question that arises directly and sometimes yeah. reflects on nature, the natural order of things can help us. And further, I think natural revelation is designed to complement special revelation since it can actually help us understand why God has given us the commands that he has in his word. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, I think understanding nature and, and, and creational design is actually very helpful, not only for biblical understanding, biblical interpretation, biblical application, but also for the church's mission in the world, doing apologetics and the pub, you know, publicly uh, apply, you know, applying God's word to public and social life. Mm-hmm. So let, let me give a few examples of this. Um, well, we started with homosexuality, so let's just take that. Um, the Bible can tell us that homosexuality is wrong. Does it mm-hmm. tell us why homosexuality is wrong? Right. Um, to some degree it might, but I actually think this is where nature can really, really help us. So, for example, Paul at the end of Romans 1 says this. Um, He's talking here towards the end of the chapter. He's talking, well, I'll just read this whole section starting verse 26. For this reason, so it's Romans 1, 26 to 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So let's ask an exegetical question. Mm-hmm. When men commit homosexuality, what does it mean for them to receive in themselves the due penalty for their error? What does that mean? I don't know that the Bible spells that out for us, but if we know something about the world around us, if if we investigate the world empirically, we find, for example, that uh, men who engage in homosexuality have a very high rate of certain diseases, 
mm-hmm. very high rate of certain cancers. In fact, a homosexual lifestyle will, will typically knock more than a decade off of the average man's lifespan. Okay, so, you know, we think we, we outlaw smoking because it's bad for people's health. Okay, homosexuality is worse. Hmm. Uh, not to mention that, that, that men who practice homosexuality report far higher levels of mental, psychological, and emotional distress. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, the way the way that people in the world would explain that is they would say, well, the reason they're under they have such distress is because uh, people don't approve of their lifestyle and that causes them to feel shame. And if you, you know, especially you Christians, if you would just approve of of the gay lifestyle, you know, then then that would, you know, that would alleviate the problem. That's not the case, right. because even in places where homosexuality is widely approved, uh, you still have these same issues crop up. You know, further, you'd still have to deal with the fact that it is, it's a, it's a health crisis. It, it just, mm-hmm. and, and I won't go into all the details here. This is a family show, <laughs> I think, right? Uh, but, uh, yeah, sure. and, and this information is really suppressed. I mean, I will say this, when the internet first, you know, became a thing, you could actually Google and find this kind of stuff pretty easily, you know, mm. you know, say the, the health consequences of the homosexual lifestyle for men. Mm-hmm. And what happens when a man's penis and anus get used in the way that they get used in homosexual mm-hmm. activity? Um, but now it's much harder to find that information. It has been suppressed. Mm. But you know, if you look hard enough, you can't find this kind of thing, and and you will find that it is extremely damaging to the body to engage in homosexual practice. Right. Okay. Right. So 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 you could say, okay, when Paul says they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error, in a sense that homosexuality brings with it its own punishment, you can actually see if you investigate the world, you can see all kinds of ways in which this is true. Yeah. So a, a, an investigation of the natural world helps us understand what scripture means. I, I think it's, you know, there's, to me, there's not a sharp line between what Paul says about receiving in themselves the due penalty for their perversion and what we learn from looking at the, 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 the created order, how right. there's kind of a negative feedback that, that nature itself gives to those who engage in homosexuality. Now, you can do the same thing with fornication. People who live a fornicating lifestyle actually do all kinds of damage to themselves as well. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about how this is the one sin that is, is against the body. There's something unique about, about sexual sin, about fornication. And again, there we can look at, you know, we can do um, an investigation into yeah. the natural world and we can find all kinds of ways in which, yes, there is something horrifically damaging about sexual sin. Sexual right. sin can be forgiven. Sexual sin, you can find all kinds of healing in the midst of sexual brokenness, but sexual sin does have a unique set of consequences. And so, yeah. for example, the so again, this is just empirical research. This kind of stuff you can find out there. This is still available on the internet pretty readily. The more sexual partners that someone has before marriage, especially a woman, the more likely she is to get divorced once she is married. So in other words, the more you have sex outside of the covenant of marriage, the more difficult it is for you to bond sexually with your partner when you are married. Okay. And this is especially true for women. When I was growing up, and I know this got picked up by the purity culture people and then, you know, it got rejected because, you know, people thought it was, well, just, it's the kind of illustration that hurts people's feelings. But, you know, the example was used of a piece of tape. You know, you put a piece of tape on something and it sticks really well. Okay. But if you pull it off, 
and then try to stick it again. It doesn't stick so well. And finally, you do that enough times, it doesn't stick at all. Right. And that was used as an illustration of what happens if you have multiple sexual partners before right. marriage. That was a really well, corny illustration, but it was also it was also absolutely backed up by the empirical data. That's right. Yeah, I was just listening to a, a podcast with um, a neuroscientist who was talking about this exact thing that that pairing. I think it's called pairing. That there is a there there is a chemical um, phenomenon uh, uh, that that happens when when uh, it happens in, in humans, but also happens in animals, where where after uh, after sex, there is there there are chemicals that are that have been that are expressed or um, uh, uh, they're hormones. Yeah, you're, you're exactly they're, right. They're hormones yeah. that, that, that sort of create a, a, a bear, a, a pairing that's or right. a bonding Bond. kind of phenomenon. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so the way um, Nancy Percy, actually, if you want to look this up, one, one place that uh, where this is dealt with really well is in Nancy Percy's book, which is, it's an excellent book, love thy body. And she talks about how for men and women, both after sexual intercourse, there are certain hormones that are, produced in high doses that create that sense of bonding. So the problem is what, so what happens if you are having sexual intimacy with somebody who is not your spouse is you're getting these feelings of being bonded to somebody with whom you have no bond. Right. Uh, The way that one, when, when scientists who research this, you know, basically the way they described it is look, when you have sex with somebody, your body makes a promise your body forms a bond, whether you intend it to or not. You might think you're just having casual sex, and this is kind of a throwaway you know, event. You're just doing this for, for pleasure in the moment, and you don't mean anything by it. But sex does not mean anything we want it to mean. Sex has an right. objective meaning. God has designed sex in a certain way that it has a certain meaning. And so to use it outside of the context it was designed for, to misuse it in that way, to use it unnaturally, we could say, uh, is actually to do damage to yourself. You right. do hurt yourself. You're, you're, you're bonding with somebody with whom you have no bond. And, and do you do that enough? And it becomes almost impossible for you to pair bond with a person that you ultimately do want to get married to. Right. Which again, I'm not saying that there can't be repentance and restoration sure. and healing from all of that. But we should also be realistic about the fact that sex does have consequences. Sex, yeah. you know, sex outside of, of marriage does have, it's a, like every other sin, that's a sin with consequences. And we need to be honest totally. and straightforward about what those consequences well, are. Well, and I think, and I think the obvious, the I think sex is such an obvious place to look at this. But I, I was intrigued by on this podcast I listened to is it was a guy talking a lot about the dopamine, um, and and kind of the whole system around dopamine and how it's actually, it's actually uh, dopamine serves as a natural reward system to mm-hmm. to reinforce. Um, um, hard, hard work, like doing, accomplishing hard things, like setting yourself right, a goal right. and, and then accomplishing it. Like you say, Hey, I'm going to chop some wood for 30 minutes. And I'm going to stack it up and I'm going to try to get through that, that, that section of wood. Uh, when you're done, you know, your body has a, has a built in kind of reward system that, that, that gets reinforced when you, when you go out and do the hard thing, your brain is sort of, waiting for that treat that that dopamine treat that you're that you're that uh it's kind of dangling out there that you get that sense of satisfaction of checking something off the list um and and one of the dangers they were talking about is 
you know, gluttony or, you know, things like video games or whatever are all kind of designed to, um, to, and drugs. I mean, drugs, this is what, this is why yeah. drugs are so addictive is they sort of circumvent that whole. And the reason why drugs are in particular are so addictive is that you're getting the, you're getting the, 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 uh, intense dose of that, that kind of reward of dopamine and the way your body is designed is you you associate the reward with the thing you did right before you got the reward. So in my, in my example, I would get the dopamine after I completed the project of, of doing something difficult and constructive. But for a drug user, they get the this intense dopamine reward after they went out and did some drug seeking behavior. And so now... And so now they're the way they're wired is I'm going to go do that drug seeking behavior again. So God's actually built into nature this whole system that's 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 uh, that exists to help um, yeah to help yeah, that's right. forth, you know virtue. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So 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 what we've done in the modern world is we have created all of these very easy ways to get the dopamine hit. You get the dopamine hit without any without any effort. Right. And and so in a, in a way, you're kind of short circuiting your own right. design. And actually right. what's happening is the video game makers and the Facebook designers and the Instagram designers are basically using your own biology against you. That's right. They've hijacked your own biology and psychology to use it against you to get you to do what they want you to do, which is spend as much time on their app or with their video game as possible. Uh, and, and, and that's a real problem. So, so again, it's one of these things where by reflecting on our own design, uh, what it means to be a human, uh, we can actually come to a better understanding of what's really good for us. And we might figure out that, you know, having your, um, you know, having your Instagram app open all day long is probably not really good for your mental health because there's a there might be a dopamine high, but then there are also and I you know this this would be another whole aspect of this discussion. But there's also a lot of lows <laughs> that can come from it too, totally. uh, and so it's not surprising that uh, you know uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, and and I forget his co-author's name, but in, in the book The Coddling of the American Mind, one thing that they looked at is the exploding rates of especially female teenage depression. Mm -hmm. boys too, but especially girls, uh, getting depressed, teenage girls, especially starting around 2000, what, 10 or 12, right in there, right about the time the smartphone and apps like Instagram become really, really popular. Yeah. Just an exploding rate of depression. And it's because, uh, they're, they're, they're wearing themselves out mentally, yeah. emotionally, psychologically with social media. You weren't designed for that kind of thing. And they're so receiving in themselves know, the due penalty for their error. I mean, they're, they're you could right. Say that. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. they're getting, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, um, and, and, and you, you got depression, but you've also got, you know, you got people who stay up too late because they can't turn off right. the TV or they can't turn off the Instagram. Uh, and, and that, that has natural effects on your, on your life and your, you know, huge effects. Um, or, or you've got, um, um, like you said, depression or even just your house is a mess, you know, you, your house is a mess because you're addicted to, to your phone. Um, right, that's right. a natural consequence of, right. of, 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 uh, sinful or, or unvirtuous behavior. Yeah. So let me, let me clarify something else that comes up when we talk about creational design. There are some people who think 
natural law means that we go to, for example, the lower creation and we observe the lower creation and then we kind of derive an ethic from that. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that animals don't behave the same way. You have some, you have a, you have a few animals that do mate for life, like the eagles, but most animals don't do that. Um, so, uh, you know, there are people who have said, well, see the lower creation, it, it, or, you know, you have some animals that will engage in homosexual activity. And so mm -hmm. some people will say, well, see, you know, nature actually teaches us that homosexuality is okay. That's actually not what has ever been meant by natural law. Even when, uh, mm -hmm. Solomon in the book of Proverbs says, go to the ant. I'm not really sure that that's an example of natural law reasoning so much as it is just drawing an analogy between one particular observable kind of ant behavior and the way right. humans should live. The way that, 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 that natural law or what I like to call creational design arguments are made is by reflecting on human nature, reflecting on the way God made us. That may or may not be similar to the way the lower creation is designed to live and the way that 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 the lower creation, you know, the animals and whatnot live in a fallen world. So let, let me, let, let's go back to our example of sex and then we'll take the, the example of homosexuality and, and kind of work this through. Let's say that your 15 year old son or daughter asks you, dad, you've told me before that I should save sex for marriage, but why? I've got friends that have started having sex why should I save sex for marriage? Now, think about this. As a parent, you could say to your child in good biblicist fashion, the Bible tells you to obey me and I have commanded you to wait until you're married to have sex. And so that settles it. Okay. God tells you to obey your parents. I'm telling you to wait. That's it. Okay. That's, that's a perfectly valid argument, an appeal to your own authority backed up by the word of God. But is that fully sufficient? I would say if that's all a parent does, that parent is doing is is guilty of parental malpractice. Yeah. You're not being a good parent at that point. Uh, again, in good biblicist fashion, you could say to your 15-year-old, well, uh, the Bible says that fornication is a sin. The Bible says fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6. So therefore, don't, don't fornicate, don't have sex outside of marriage because God said so. Okay, again, nothing wrong with that argument. It comes straight from special revelation. It's yep. absolutely clear. I mean, no doubt. Okay. But again, I would say if that's all you do, you haven't, you haven't done enough. You're not being a very good parent. Right. I think what you can do is say those things. You can say, you know, to your son, to your daughter, Hey, you know, I've, I've told you, I want you to, uh, save sex for marriage because it's the right thing to do. But I've also told you that because I love you and it's what's best for you. And it's how God designed you. There's a reason why God has given us the commandments he has given to us. Right. They're not arbitrary. It's not that God is some cosmic killjoy right. who created this arbitrary command about sex just so he could kind of torture you. No, God designed you to live in a certain way. And God designed men and women to pair together uh, you know, physically to become one flesh within the covenant of marriage for a reason. It's what we were right. made for. And then you can go into all those reasons and, and it'll be a mix of things we find in special revelation and things we find in from well, our uh, observation of, of, of the world around us that will make a very compelling case, I think, for your child, why it is best for them to save sex for marriage. Well, and it's especially, it's especially, um, one of the reasons why you've got to appeal to, to nature is that, um, you know, the, the rhetorical force of, um, of here's all the reasons why it's bad for you. 
um, I think is 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 much less um, powerful than the 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 positive arguments. You know, I I, I remember a man um, teaching a class about about this topic when I was unmarried, and I remember him saying, you know your sex life is going to be better. You know, like your, your relationship with your wife is going to be better if, if you, if you approach it this way. And, and as a young man who's very excited and interested in sex, that was, that was pretty compelling to me. You know, it was like, Oh, this guy's actually not trying to say, uh, just don't do it because it's, you know, cause there's consequences. He was trying to say it's, a, it's actually, it's actually going to be better. You're going to have a healthier, happier, more fulfilling sex life if you do it this way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, some people criticized purity culture because they thought it taught a, you know, sort of a health, wealth and prosperity gospel of sex, you know, that right. basically the reason you should refrain is so you have this amazing sex life and marriage. And then of course, some people sure. maybe, did, you know, didn't experience that as so then, then, you know, they felt like they had been cheated or something, which I don't know. I mean, what did they think that they would have been much happier had they fornicated beforehand? Right. I, I've never really understood all the criticisms of purity right. culture, but I do, th- I do think there were probably some, some kids growing up in the you know 1990s and early 2000s who, when purity culture was at its peak, who were, who were taught in that way. And that was probably, well, I'll put it this way. In, in some cases it was probably um, taught in a way that, that could ultimately be, be harmful. But I will say this, what that what that person taught you that you found compelling is true in a proverbial way. You know, the proverbs give us generalizations. In general, all the data we have bears this out. In general, people who are chaste before marriage mm-hmm. uh, have happier marriages than those who uh, do a lot of fornicating before they get married. Right. Again, there, there's a direct correlation between the number of sexual partners someone has before marriage and right. the chances of that person getting divorced. So well, I, it is, I, it is true in, in a proverbial way there there's, but, but, but I would say part of it is this too. It's that if you are the kind of person who practices self-control right. so that you can control your sexual urges before you get married, then you're growing into the kind of mature person who can practice self-sacrifice and self-denial right. and self-control, which will actually make you a better spouse anyway. Right. You know, so, so there's, right. it's, it's, it's really not just about the sex. It's about your character. It's about That's the kind right. of person you're becoming. Well, and there's also this, this appeal to kind of truth, beauty, and goodness where I, I remember, I remember a, 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 um, a teacher in high school, I heard uh, talking on this topic saying something like, you know, what's really romantic is the idea of, uh, of two people who are doing everything they can to make each other f- feel better, to please, uh, and bless each other. That's pretty, that's pretty hot, you know? Um, yeah. whereas I remember attending, um, my friend went to a, a, a community college in Washington, state of Washington. And I, I just went to school with him one day and there was somebody giving a talk on sex and this person basically, their whole thrust of their argument was, you need to spend as much time as possible focusing on yourself and discovering what it is you like mm-hmm. so that someday when you end up with someone, you can tell them how to please you or you can, you can, and, and it was, and just, just the contrast for me, you know, of truth, beauty, goodness of here's one picture of someone who's completely self-obsessed and, and demanding that the other person meet their particular needs that picture versus the picture of here's someone who is 
completely oriented towards how do I please and satisfy and bless this other person. Just those two pictures, which one, which one looks more beautiful and, and resonates more with, with, again, with your nat, your natural, with nature, but also with, with the picture we have in scripture of, of who God is and how, how he's designed us to live. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that, that's really good. That, that, I mean, um, let's take the let's take the case of homosexuality then for just a minute and again you you know the question could be asked well why is homosexuality wrong and we could give biblical reasons there are plenty of biblical passages i don't care what somebody tries to do with them to to twist them to make them say something else they're really really clear and if there's any question about that i would point you to say robert gagnon's excellent work um, on homosexual practice in the bible he basically takes all of those liberal and progressive attempts to make the Bible say something different, and he refutes all of them. But still, somebody may may want to you know may be asking the question. And again, I think that that it is it is wise for us to not just make our appeal to the Bible, but also to make a case based on creational design because these things go together. We already saw that with with you know Romans one twenty seven okay sure. receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error the due penalty for their perversion okay mm-hmm. you know and, and we can we can you know examine the the created order around us and we can see what that means how that works right. but there are other things we can say too and this is the kind of thing that i think adam and eve could have figured out you know even even before a specific biblical prohibition was given sure. Um, and I, I didn't come up with this myself. I picked it up from one of my graduate school professors, Jay Buchaszewski, who is a who's a Christian at the University of Texas, and he didn't come up with it either, as I understand. He he picked it up from somewhere else as well. But uh, I think it's it's really helpful. So think about it this way. And this this is an argument that that derives from reflecting on human nature and human design. Right. Okay. So uh, every human has a number of systems within himself that are complete. Every human has a complete digestive system. Every human has a complete circulatory system and nervous system and skeletal system. And uh, did I say respiratory, circulatory, you know, um, know, those kinds of systems, you've got all of those systems complete in yourself. But no human has a complete reproductive system. Hmm. As it turns out, the man has half of it and the woman has the other half. And the man's reproductive system makes no sense apart from the woman's reproductive system and vice versa. Okay. Why do you have the equipment you have, the reproductive equipment you have? Yeah. Unless there is um, another that you can pair with that would complete what you have. Because clearly, you know, we don't reproduce asexually. We reproduce by coming together. So what is the purpose of your reproductive powers, your reproductive organs? Well, um, they find their completion, so to speak, in someone of the opposite sex. Now, somebody might say, well, but sex is not just for reproduction, it's also for pleasure. Well, sex is full of pleasure, obviously, but the pleasure is not the main purpose of it, it's a byproduct of it. Just like we could say, the per- you know, eating is very pleasurable, most eating is very pleasurable, but the purpose of eating is not the pleasure, the purpose of eating is nourishment. The pleasure you get from it is a byproduct. Okay, it's, it's wonderful that God has made it so there's so many things that we can eat and enjoy eating, right. but that's not the main, that's not the central purpose. The central purpose of eating is nourishment. The central purpose of your reproductive organs is not pleasure, it's reproduction, it's procreation. Uh, so, so 
so so then that being the case, then you have to ask, okay, then how should my you know, what, what is the end? What is the telos? What is the purpose of these reproductive organs I have? Uh, it is to create a child with someone of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. That's what it's for. Okay. So, um, you know, th- think about it this way. Um, you know, let's say that, 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 that each human only had half of a digestive system. And so one person would chew the food because they've got the, the, you know, the, mouth and the teeth and whatnot. And then they'd have to go find somebody else who's got the stomach and the, you know, the, the small intestine and the large intestine and all that. Okay. You'd have to pair up to get the complete system to digest what you eat. Okay. Obviously it doesn't work that way. It'd be kind of gross and disgusting if it did, but, but when it comes to reproduction, that's how it is. Each sex only has half of the system. So then right. the question is, well, where do you find the, the completion of the system? It's not going to be in somebody of the same sex. Right. It can only be someone in someone of the opposite sex. Right. So there's a kind of proof that it is a misuse of your reproductive powers, your pre- reproductive organs to, 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 to pair up with somebody of the same sex sexually. It's not what you were designed for. Uh, your, your, your reproductive powers will be frustrated. They won't be realized that way. Now, there's a lot of spinoff arguments you have to make about... Um, you know, sex between a man and a woman when there's no possibility of a child being conceived and that kind of thing. But all those arguments can be dealt with. I'm, and I'm not going to try to go into all that here. I'm just making the basic case for why homosexuality is wrong. It's clear that God designed the man's sexuality to find completion in the woman and vice versa. You could go one step further and say, well, since sex has the power to produce new life, what is the right context for sex? And then you would have to say, well, there needs to be uh, a loving and permanent relationship between the, the two persons who have sex to create this child. Right. Because it takes a long time and a huge investment in order to raise the child. And you're going to need somebody who can nurture the child at home while somebody goes out, well, well, you know, while the other one goes out and, and provides for uh, the child right. who's at home nurturing the, the, you know, nurturing the child. So you, you've got, you know, you can actually start to reconstruct just out of examining human nature, basically everything that the Bible teaches about sex and about the family and about role relationships between men and women and the permanence right. of marriage and all these other things. I mean, so much so that I, you know, I've actually read sociologists who have said, look, if, if the nuclear family did not already exist, we would need to invent it because it is the best possible system for the, uh, you know, the rearing and nurturing of the next generation. You know, we need something like permanent marriage between a man and a woman, uh, in, you know, in order to create the best possible environment, uh, for children to, uh, be born into and to be raised up in. Well, we've we've talked it. We've mentioned it already on the show. Um, you you meant you brought it up, and I went and I went and started reading it. Um, the book um, "Sperm is Cheap, Eggs Are Expensive" is oh, a, yeah, a, yeah. It's kind of an exploration of this exact topic where you it start is, getting yeah. into. He's not trying to make a biblical argument. He's just trying to make a, a pure argument from nature about the roles of men and women, and uh, in 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 the family, in in relation to one another, and also in society. And it's, if you, if you allow yourself to actually enter into that, that kind of thought experiment or that, that exercise of really, really asking the questions, what is this for? Why is this, why is this, this way? Why are women built the way they are? Why are men built the way you are? Um, it, it, it does all start to fall into place where it's like this. And I just think it's, it's one of those, I mentioned that book about, you know, our laws, um, serving to kind of reinforce our natural, you know, um, 
conscience or, or, or understanding of the law. And it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that a book like that, um, has to even be written, you know, that, that we are, we have become so numbed to the, the just complete obvious, uh, design of, of humanity that that we need a book to walk us through these obvious, obvious facts. There's a kind of willful blindness to yeah. obvious created realities. You know, right. we're suppressing the truth. And and this is because when you reject God, you reject reality. Yeah. Uh, you can't reject God and then hang on to reality. Right. Right? I think we talked about this a while back when we talked about Jordan Peterson. I mean, you can, yeah. you can do so inconsistently to some yeah. degree, but God is the ultimate reality. And so when you reject God, you lose touch with yeah, the way right. things are. And you start to you start to go insane and live in this you know sort of fantasy world as it were, and and that's what we're seeing in the culture all around us. Yeah. Um, I'll give you another couple of examples where I yeah. think um, appeals to nature are very valuable. You know, I wrote the book Pato Faith. I mean, as yeah. far as I know, it's the only book length treatment that's ever been done on the topic of infants having faith, covenant infants yeah. having a trusting relationship with their heavenly father. It's a great book. And um, one thing that I found that was interesting, I mean, this is, you know, the book's been out for, you know, probably like 18 years now. But um, when I when I was doing my work on that, of course, the, the basis of my case is exegetical. You know, I appeal to yeah. Psalm 22, where David says that he... You know, he says, you were my God from the womb. I trusted in you as a nursing infant. So, you know, David says that he had faith as an infant. So all Israelites would have been singing this psalm and would have been putting those words on their lips, basically saying the same thing about their experience. Not to say that it happens in every single case, but it's, there's a kind of normativity to it. Sure. But one thing that I also have done, and I did this actually in a follow-up essay because I didn't have room for all of this in the book, but, you know, you have the biblical testimony to... Pato faith. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of empirical, observational, scientific data that fits mm-hmm. with it very much. The relationality of infants in the womb, how mm-hmm. infants, you know, now we know because of various tests we can run and observations we can make that, that even in the womb, uh, the child recognizes mom's voice and dad's voice and distinguishes them in terms of mm-hmm. response. Uh, there are all kinds of ways in which the child in the womb uh, demonstrates personhood and relationality. Yeah. And of course, if the child can have a relationship with his parents, why can't it have a relationship with God as well? I mean, that was kind of right. part of it. So so you can take something the Bible claims about infants, that infants are capable of relational trust, and then you can uh, further support that and, and build up your argument for that based on things that we learn observationally from looking at children in the womb. Uh, here's another area where I think appeals to natural revelation and the created order, creational design are absolutely necessary. And it is really any area of aesthetics, but really my favorite one to point to is music. Hmm. Um, if you if you adopt a really narrow biblicism, there's very little you can say about music or any of the arts for that matter. There's very little mm-hmm. you can say about beauty. Because while the Bible acknowledges objective beauty, some things are beautiful, some things are ugly, the reality is the Bible tells us very little about what constitutes beauty. So if I want to make an argument that Bach's music is superior to Britney Spears' music, which I think it is, I can, my argument is not going to come, strictly speaking, from the Bible. My right. argument is going to have to come from a reflection on the principles of music 
and, and other things that I am actually deriving from nature, from my, from my study of and understanding of the created order and how God designed mm-hmm. the world to work and actually what constitutes beauty. Now, obviously, there's other considerations that could come in, like, you know, say, lyrical content and things like that. So, so there are things that might be more directly related to the Bible, but I'm really talking about the music itself. Yeah. If I want to make an argument that a certain piece of music is appropriate for worship and another piece of music is not, uh, again, I can't prove that to you from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to use considerations that come from natural revelation right. in order to make that kind of case. And I think we need right. to be able to make that kind of case. I mean, one thing that right. really uh, I think is highly problematic in our culture today is we don't have any sense of propriety, any yeah. sense of what's appropriate to various contexts. There's different kinds of music for different zones or areas of life. So there's one kind of music that's fitting to rock a child to sleep. Another kind of music that's fitting to get you pumped up before a basketball game, and still another kind of music that's appropriate for a, a symphony orchestra concert, and yet another kind of music that's appropriate for the corporate worship of the people of God. Right. And not understanding that, ha- right. having lost all sense of propriety and decorum, you know, the Bible talks about fittingness. That is a biblical category, mm-hmm. but filling in what it means for something to be fitting, that's something we're going to have to learn from. Yeah. our uh, reflection on on natural revelation it's really good and that's 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 probably a whole other episode because I, I i really i've had so many conversations recently about aesthetics and and uh, and i think this whole conversation about natural law or or creational law um the role that it has in forming our uh you know i as you were talking earlier, I was thinking about Proverbs as basically being an inspired, inspired reflections on natural yes. law, you know? Yes. And, and so you've got this, this, this sort of example of here's what it looks like to be wise. You're looking at the world and you're, and you're discerning, you're discerning the, the wisdom of God that's baked into the way nature functions, you know? Um, and, and I think the fact that I can have a devout, mature Christian sit there and tell me there's no such thing as good music or bad music. There's no such thing as right, good architecture right. or bad architecture it is a is a testament to how Gnostic and how um, how how far we've gone from valuing uh nature and, and natural yeah. law that we've become so ideological um, that we can't even, we can't even appeal to things like beauty anymore. Right. Uh, as an right. Argument, which like you said, you, you know, is this, is this song better for getting pumped up for a basketball game or for a funeral? Um, you could ask a, a million people and, and all of them are going to get that answer. Right. You know, right, right. Um, it doesn't matter what culture you grew up in. You're going to get that answer right um, uh, because it's it's baked into nature. So why can't we why can't you refine that discernment? Uh, right. Right. And, and, and be able to apply it um, in, in all all manner of ways. Well, yeah. So, so a few more things about this. I'm, I'm, you're exactly right about that. Um, some people wonder how you can jump from an is to an ought. So, for example, in in my example with homosexuality, I talked about the is of you know, say, 
human design, our, you know, our different biological systems and our reproductive system, but how can you jump from an is to an ought? Well, the way you can jump from an is to an ought, kind of what fills in that gap, what creates the bridge from is to ought, is this notion of divine design. Okay, so that, that's, you, you know, natural law arguments are not theologically neutral, and natural law arguments are not um, devoid of any theological presuppositions. I mean, again, that's why I said that natural and special revelation have to work together. Uh, so um, what allows you to move from an is to an ought is this notion of divine design, that God made the world to work in a certain way. That, that's the right. key thing to see. Okay. Um, in the same way, God created you know, a world in which we can make all different kinds of music right. because there are all different kinds of situations and occasions in human life for which different forms of music would be appropriate. Right. Um, I think I think the right use of natural law, you know, so you you use the book of Proverbs. I think I think Proverbs in a way, you know, obviously Proverbs belongs to special revelation, right. but a lot of the ways in which the Proverbs are derived would be very similar to how you would end up with various, you know, arguments from creational design. Right. Uh, because I, th I think a lot of, cre well, there are certain arguments we make from creational design that have the force of law. Much of it is about wisdom. Okay. Right. Much of it is about wisdom. So, for example, the book of Proverbs says that a soft answer turns away wrath. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, a soft answer doesn't always keep somebody from getting mad at you. That's not true 100% of the time. But Solomon knows a thing or two about human nature. Right. And because he knows a thing or two about how humans typically operate and what provokes humans versus what softens humans, he's right. able to to make that kind of claim. It's the well, same kind of thing you that see that... when Solomon is, you know, when there's one baby and two women fighting over this baby, who's, you know, one, because one baby was, you know, one woman rolled over and smothered her baby and killed it and mm -hmm. then took the other woman's baby. He knows a thing or two about maternal nature. Right. And that's why he knows how to solve the dilemma. That's it's right. not that he just says, you know, sort of randomly, well, let's just chop the baby in half and that'll reveal. But he knows something. He, he's got an in-depth knowledge of maternal instinct and maternal nature. And he knows that the true mother will be revealed in this kind of way. Right. So that's wisdom. And having that kind of intuitive insight into the way the world works, into the way God designed uh, human life and human society and human family, to work is, I mean, that, that's a form of wisdom, but it largely derives from what I would call natural revelation, yeah. observations and reflections based on the created order. Yeah, I, I, I was sitting there as I was, as I was thinking about Proverbs and preparing to make that comment, I was sitting there thinking, is Proverbs special revelation? Well, well, clearly we'd say it's scripture, it's inspired, um, but there's almost a, a different category because a soft answer turns away wrath. That wasn't made true because, because it was in the Proverbs. It was confirmed in, you know, by God, uh, when he, when, when Solomon was inspired to write it. Right. But, 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 uh, a soft answer turning away wrath is, is something that, that somebody could have arrived at, um, if they were, if they're paying attention. Um, right, right. And so it's kind of an, and it, it, it's it's not prophecy, you know. It's not um, it's not law in the in the sense that you know the Ten Commandments are are special revelation of God's law. Right. Um, it, it's really a different, kind of an interesting, different category of inspired, um, inspired natural law. It's inspired. It's 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 natural law that's that's divinely confirmed. 
you know? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, you know, I mean, and, you know, again, there are also times where we don't give a soft answer. We give a really firm, hard answer. There there are times to, uh, you know, I think you see Jesus doing this with the Pharisees or Paul in Galatians, you know, where, I mean, Paul's not giving a soft answer to the Galatians because he's not trying to turn away their wrath. Right. He's trying to correct deep theological error. So, right. so there, again, you know, even if you think about, you know, rhetorically, we've got this whole toolbox of different ways we can talk that, right. that are appropriate to different kinds of situations, knowing what form of speech and what way of, of um, you know, not just what you say, but how you say it and the body language you use and everything else. I mean, there's a reason why rhetoric is closely associated with wisdom as well, because again, it's a lot about understanding human nature. This is why persuasion has been called the master skill, because in order to really persuade, you've got to understand something about human nature. You've got to have this in-depth understanding. Absolutely. Um, Let let me give one more example of this, and then we can can start to wrap it up. Um, Attraction between men and women. What women find attractive in men is very different from what men find attractive in women. And in an egalitarian world, that's something people will often have a hard time admitting or understanding. Uh, you know, it's something you got to grapple with in, in the world today as it, you know, as we've got so much confusion about this. But, you know, so, so rewind that all the way back to Adam and Eve. Okay. And, th- and this, this applies like if you are a single guy trying to get a date yeah. or if you're a married man and you're trying to, um, you know, keep the romance alive in your marriage. You have to understand something about female nature. And of course, women need to understand something about male nature. Um, but go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay. God tells them to be fruitful and multiply, but he does not actually give them a sex manual. Right. They're going to have to figure that out. And so I would say there's a great deal about human sexuality, about male female attraction. Uh, you know, in this whole area that is, that is, I think, very much reinforced by what we find in special revelation, but also is going to be a matter of reflecting on creational design. And I would actually take this back to the dominion mandate. You know, if it's got two sides to it, a dominion side and a multiplication side, you know, men are made for dominion and they're looking for somebody to multiply with. A woman is made for multiplication and she's looking for somebody who can take dominion for her and, and, and with her. So there, there's this kind of this, you know, this perfect pairing, how men and women complement one another in these ways. So women tend to look for those things in a man that signal dominion, you know, sure. maybe his physique, his confidence, his status, you know, if money is tied to dominion, that can be a part of it. You know, the, the, the kinds of things that a woman finds attractive in a man have less to do with whether or not he's handsome. I'm not saying that's irrelevant, but as a host of other factors, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated set of factors, pretty much all of which point to dominion in some kind of way. It's why, um, you know, women are often attracted to men who are really good athletes. You know, the, yeah. the, the head cheerleader wants to date the, fo- the quarterback of the football team because... Yeah. He has signaled that he is a man of dominion, that he has taken dominion over the football field, uh, and he's a leader on the team. I mean, those, those are the kind of things that, that, that women are drawn to. They're, they're attracted to status and, and whatnot. Whereas for men, uh, you know, obviously character matters a great deal for men and women, but if you ask a man what he is attracted to, first and foremost about a woman, it has to do with her physical appearance. And all of those things physically are cues for multiplication, um, for fertility, um, the, you know, the things about her body that he's most drawn to are things that signal 
multiplication and fertility. So again, we're a family show. I won't say any more about it than that. But uh, <laughs> but you, so so there's a kind of complementarity even in the way men and women are attracted to one another. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and again, this is something that I think we could figure out from looking at the Bible. Man, it sure does help. You're, you're going to do so much better in your relationship with your spouse or just your relationship with the opposite sex if you're trying to find a spouse, if you understand these kinds of things that, again, arise from reflection upon the created order. Right. Yeah. So good, Rich. I mean, I, I just think this whole conversation, um, you know, we've I think we've kind of scratched the surface, but I think the application for somebody who's new to this conversation is um, is is that you're probably, if you're a modern American Christian, evangelical Christian, you're probably, you've probably steeped in a tradition and a culture that, that grossly undervalues the importance and role of nature um, yes. in, in, in our, in our day-to-day lives, in the way that we think about politics, the way that we think about morality, the way that we think about society, um, laws and so on and so forth. We've just, we've just so undervalued it. Uh, to where it's it's not even it's not even an option, you know, when you're sitting there making an argument in the public square, or you're making an argument in church, or 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 with a family member, it's it's become, you know, some some someone's bewitched us, you know, culturally to yeah. where yeah. where we've we've sort of seeded that ground as a as a ground we can stand on to fight, a vantage point we can we can stand on to fight, and it's and it's it's grossly um, uh, crippled us in our ability to, to engage, you know, with culture and, uh, and successfully. And, yeah. and, and I, I just say, you know, um, our enemies have definitely not ceded that ground and, and they're actually fighting very uh, successfully on, 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 in the areas, areas of, of trying to redefine and retrain our understanding of nature and of beauty and of, yeah. of aesthetics and things like that. They're trying to, they're trying to push, you know, they're, they're trying to make arguments. They're trying to make their own arguments from nature and it's, it's always twisted and perverted. Um, but we're not willing to, we're not willing to meet them head to head. You know, we're not willing to go, you want to talk about transgenderism in, in nature. Let's talk about, let's really talk about nature and sexuality. Let's do that. Right. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 I think you're right as far as what's going on in the world around us. If I had to summarize this, like if, if, if you want a recap yeah. of this, you know, I would, I would tell somebody to go read probably the first 20 or so pages of my, you know, my little booklet, America's war on yeah. God. Yeah. Because that's going to summarize all this for you. And I do go in, in into also explaining why natural law arguments are really not that persuasive in the world today right at yeah. this moment, whereas in past times they were. And I think a lot of, I think the big change really yeah. is Darwinism and the denial yeah. that there is even a, you know, a fixed nature of Darwinism basically means everything is in flux. And so how can you make an appeal right. to the nature of something if there really is no nature there? If anything can become anything, which is what Darwinism entails. Well, and the Enlightenment and is, an argument from it. and the Enlightenment is so focused on objective truth, uh, right? And, 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 and nature, arguments from nature have a subjectivity about them. Right. I mean, they are, they are objectively true, but there's also, there, there's, I guess there's an interpretation and, and, and 
it's an interpretation that should be obvious to any human being, but somehow I think in the Enlightenment we sort of said, well, unless we can plot it on a graph and test it empirically, um, it's it's not it's not knowledge. Yeah. So yeah. So what I think is interesting. Um, yeah. I, there's there's a lot of things going on there, but um, you know, if I and, and I and I would point people to my paper because that's where you're going to find a lot of this stuff spelled out that we haven't. You know, there's a lot of other things we haven't gotten to today that I think are are, are useful in thinking all of this through. But I think it's really important for Christians to recognize that God designed natural and special revelation to work together. It's never one without the other. And I don't think there really is any such thing as a pure argument just from nature, or even for that matter, a pure argument just from Scripture. They're always interacting with each other. That's, that's inescapably the case. But if we cut ourselves off from nature as a source of wisdom, then we lose a great deal. We're not going to be able to do apologetics as effectively. We're not even going to be able to understand ourselves as effectively. We won't be able to parent or lead as effectively. There's just a lot of things that we lose when we cut ourselves off from reflection on nature. And I say this as, as a Vantillian. You know, I, I think Cornelius yeah. Vantill was basically right For on sure. these questions. And Vantill actually argues that natural revelation is authoritative and clear, just like he would argue special revelation is authoritative and clear. Now, I do think in that relationship between the two, again, I think scripture always gets the last word because scripture yeah. is the final interpretive lens. Again, also, arguments from you know, Scripture can be distorted, just like arguments from nature can be distorted. But for us, um, you know, we want to, all, I think, always be using both. We want to use every, everything God has given to us. And I think that's really, really crucial in the moment in which we live. Yeah. And hopefully we've given some good examples today of what that looks like. I mean, I think all, everything we said, of course, could be, you could deal with those things at much greater length. But hopefully it gives... Yeah. Uh, our listeners, some idea of how nature and scripture work together and how nature can help us understand why God has commanded what he's commanded uh, in the scripture. Yeah, that's good. Well, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think I, I agree. I think, I think this is hopefully a, a glimpse at, at uh, us trying to, uh, trying to demonstrate how these things work. And, and so this paper, again, um, if you want to check it out, it's America's War on God and Sexual Orthodoxy. We'll, we'll put a link in the, the podcast and, and the YouTube video and wherever else we, you know, this, this lives. But um, you can find it on trinity-prez.net. Um, yeah, go to the pastor's page or pastor's corner, whatever it's called, and you, 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 can, you can find this and some other similar things there. Awesome. Hey, Rich, it's been fun, man. Thank it's been you, great, sir. Larson. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, have a great uh, day, and we'll see you guys next time.